Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Hello again, everyone. I'd like to welcome you back to this uh, session and would like to inform people that this same session, topic, and speaker are going to be held again tonight at the University of Lethbridge in room PE264, First Choice Savings Building, beginning at uh, 7 p.m. Next week's topic here, Thursday, will be, Has the Grinch Also Stolen Halloween? And the speaker will be Austin Fennell. Okay, um, remind people that upcoming sessions are listed on SACPA's website. It's www.sacpa.ca. All past sessions have been recorded there, and they can be heard in audio on that website. There's also a session survey available there, and a blog is also available to keep the discussion going. Also, we have a suggestion box placed out outside the door here for uh, ideas uh, of other programs or maybe complaints. We hope not, though. Okay, uh, today's topic is talking about dying, and, and it won't kill you. Should we have a choice at the end of life? And our speaker is Wanda Morris. Uh, We invite people to ask questions now. And they come to this mic right up here in the front. Uh, Please state your name. Ask one or two topical questions. No more than that, probably, to give uh, as many people as possible a chance to ask a question. Please keep your preamble quite short. Uh, After you ask your questions, please take your seat and make room for somebody else to, to come up. Okay, um... I guess we're on again. I would ask Wanda to come back to the mic, and we'll be continue until about one thirty. Hello, and uh, welcome back. The microphone is there. I'm really curious and interested to hear your questions. My name is Alan Story. I'm going on 75 years of age. 
Uh, I have a lot of sympathy for your presentation that was so gently delivered. In my younger years, I was one of the brave young people that fought for relaxation of the, of the laws as it stood to allow abortions. In my later years, I've seen dear friends suffer horribly with lingering, terrible diseases. I would like that option to be available for me. However, as with abortion, I could never have contemplated the way it, things have evolved over those periods of time. I don't believe you can write legislation that will stop the abuse that will automatically spring from assisted dying, and it frightens me. Thank you. Thank you. So the, the question really stems back to the issue that the courts wrestled with is, and, and this, the appeal court of BC, even in overturning the Supreme Court of BC's decision, acknowledged what they called extraordinary, even cruel suffering. So I think that's not the issue. The issue is, can we provide some remedy to people that have that suffering and at the same time protect our weak and vulnerable. And, of course, that was the crux of the refusal in the Rodriguez case 20 years ago. But now we have a lot of evidence. So we don't have to just ask ourselves theoretically what would happen. We can look at that evidence and say, what has happened? What has happened? And the two jurisdictions that have had legalized choice for the longest time are Oregon, who have legalized it for 15 years, and the Netherlands, who now have had it for over 10. And, and one particularly, I think, important study was done by uh, a professor out of the University of Utah. Her name was Margaret Paps Batten. And the theory or the, the worry is that if we allow assisted dying then our weak and vulnerable will somehow be coerced into having it. And so what she did was she studied who has asked for it. What are the characteristics of the people? Are they, you know, do they have in Oregon, do they have health insurance? Of course, in the Netherlands, health insurance is universal. Um, what is their education like? You know, are they likely to have a well-paying job? Are they a university graduate, or did they make high school? Uh, what was their diagnosis? Where, uh, and what she found was that it was the, the primary people who were using the legislation tended to be people with cancer diagnosis. They were almost all white, so there was virtually nobody of color or ethnicity, uh, and that it tended to be people with above-average educations and not having a particular spiritual practice or religious affiliation uh, and more likely to be a man than a woman. And certainly if we look at the individuals that have come to us for support through our client support program, I, you know, not that there is such a thing as a typical person, but if there was, it would be a white male engineer, atheist. Um, <laughs> It, it is, in fact, the people of privilege, not the weak and vulnerable. That, so that's looking at who's using it. But I think another way to look at it is to say, well, what are the safeguards and how effective are they? And I actually anticipated this question, so I put some slides together. The primary safeguard 
that we have is conditions of access. When we talk about assisted dying, we're not talking about opening the doors wide and allowing anyone to just put their hand up and say, this is what I want. We're talking about support for a very, very few individuals who have a horrific diagnosis at end of life. So one of our primary safeguards is that you can't knock off grandma because grandma doesn't have cancer or ALS. Uh, you know, it, it is something that, that somebody has to be really suffering grievously. And, and just to underline how important these safeguards are, in the Netherlands, two-thirds of requests for assistance to die are declined. I mean, well, one-third is accepted, one-third is declined, and one-third of the applications of the person dies a natural death before the paperwork is completed. Uh, so it's not something that you just go into your doctor's office at 2 o'clock and the deed is done by 4. I mean, it's a process that they take very you know, seriously and very carefully. So first we have the, the conditions of access. And, and what would those look like in Canada, for example? And the first thing is that you're a competent adult. Uh, and by competent, it's a particular legal medical term that means you have the ability to understand the decision that you're making. And this is something that our doctors wrestle with every day. You know, if someone says, I don't want CPR, I want to go off my insulin medication, I no longer want dialysis, the doctor is assessing, are they competent to make that life and death decision? Uh, and if the doctor isn't competent, then they can refer to a psychiatrist. Next, they have to be sick and dying. They have to be at end of life. There are different terms that are used in the different legislations about this. Sometimes it's called unbearable suffering, a grievous illness. Uh, the Quebec legislation refers to uh, a serious illness. Uh, we'd like to see illness or medical condition with um, you know, unbearable suffering. So the idea that th this isn't something that we take lightly, this is something that's really horrendous where it's more harmful for the person to be kept alive than to be allowed to die. Uh, another condition in the safeguards is that there's no treatment that's acceptable to them. So the, the condition, it's not something that you know, could potentially go into, into remission, go away. It's, it's, it's an incurable condition and there's no acceptable treatment. So in addition to the conditions of access, which is probably the, the number one safeguard, there are a number of others. Uh, and, and critical is that it has to be self-chosen. So only the individual themselves can say this is what they want. Nobody can say about someone else, you know, you're getting a bit boring, time for you to go. It has to be the individual themselves that says my quality of life is really unbearable. And there has to be two physicians involved. Uh, and the physicians have two roles. One is to confirm the diagnosis, and the second is to check capacity. So there have to be two physicians that agree with the diagnosis and the assessment of capacity. And then the person has to get full information. Are they aware of their options for pain control, for palliative care, for home care? So that they're really making this decision based on full information. As you would expect, they always have the right to change their mind. And 
when we are with individuals right now through our client support program at End of Life, you know, what we're trying to do there is in some ways model what a legal assisted dying program would look like. And so before an individual takes a particular step to end their life, we just make sure that we ask them the question, you know, do you realize the consequences of this action? If you take it, are you sure that this is what you want to do? Uh, so that you know, it's got to be a, a consistent and persistent decision. And, and what we know is that this isn't borderline. When I, I think of the clients that we have worked with, they have a deep hunger and longing for a peaceful death. They, they are not wavering. This is what they really want. Their families don't necessarily, in fact, usually don't want them. And their families are pleading with them to say, you know, please let us continue to take care of you but the individuals themselves are resolute. Another critical aspect is the right to palliative care. And if that's of interest to you, we can talk about that a little bit further as well. But uh, that nobody is uh, required to choose assisted dying because they couldn't get access to palliative care. And Quebec, for example, is introducing um, along with the right to assisted dying, the right to palliative care. And then, uh, as we've seen in Oregon and in the Netherlands, a process of oversight and reporting so that things can be controlled and scrutinized. So those are the, the conditions and safeguards uh, that we believe should be in place. Uh, you know, if you look at the reality in the Netherlands, if you look at what's happening in Oregon, those two are there. We do not see abuses. You know, there are occasional stories that appear on the Internet, but there is no evidence of abuse. The laws are the same now as they were when they were written, uh, and there's no evidence that abuses of the laws are taking place. Um, other questions? Um, I'm Trevor Page. Um, your talk didn't kill me. <laughs> Excellent. But I'm more interested in living than dying. But I have to make arrangements. And it's a very personal thing. And I'm very interested in hearing more about terminal palliative care. Um, we know about the Sue Rodriguez case. We know that some of our hospitals, emergency rooms, are like production lines. You get onto the conveyor belt when you get in, and hopefully you get to intensive care, but it ain't a certain thing. So I want to be sure that my loved ones, and me too, die the way we want to. What do we do to make sure, practically speaking, to do that? I'm very pleased that Lethbridge has started a local chapter. Uh, we're in the process of trying to find out the practicalities right here involved because, well, this is where most of us live at this session. Um, do you have any idea how many Sue Rodriguez are out there whose case doesn't get to the Supreme Court, where 
you get into the production line for death and your wishes are not respected. Do we have any idea? We've got an overwhelming number of people in Canada that say that they want to choose. But how many are not choosing is my question. Interesting. And I will respond to a few different aspects of, of that question. If we were to legalize choice in Canada, and assuming that we would have about the same number as the Netherlands, which is a jurisdiction whose legislation we are uh, supporting and closely following, that's 2% of deaths. So that would be about 5,000 people a year that would, would choose to end their lives. Uh, but what we know is that, you know, particularly Oregon, which be, um, has a slightly different model, they provide a, a prescription. So they're able to track the number of prescriptions written, the number of prescriptions filled, and then the number of prescriptions taken. And, and the numbers keep going down. So there's a, 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 you know, a fair number of prescriptions that are written, and maybe two-thirds of those are filled, and then only half of those are actually taken. Because for many people, it's the idea of having the peace of mind. And, and then it's like, it's like what we know about pain control. If you allow a patient to administer their own pain control through a pain pump, they will take less medication than if a nurse comes around with a trolley every four hours and administers it. Peace of mind and control are, are powerful analgesics. So, so a big part of, of changing the law is just that people know if the worst comes to the worst, they have this option, and, and then they are allowed to go forward. So to ask how many Sue Rodriguez's there are, I mean, and Gloria Taylor was a, a very interesting example because she got, at the B.C. Supreme Court, she got an exemption. Justice Smith changed the law, uh, which was appealed. She also gave Gloria Taylor a specific exemption so she wouldn't have to wait until the case went to the Supreme Court. Her exemption was appealed, and she won that appeal. However, she died of natural causes. And I think that's a really great outcome, that people have the peace of mind, but yet they're able to enjoy every possible day that they can. Um, in terms of, of, of people here, are you familiar with the case of Margot Bentley? Is, is that a woman who you know? She was in a care home. She's being fed... In her advanced care directive, she'd asked not to be fed. There's questions around patient rights. And as, as much as changing the law is, is a real lightning rod for our organization, at least as critical is knowing your rights as a patient. If you understand what you have the right to expect, what you have the right to refuse, and that puts you, you know, we talk about the, you know, the conveyor belt going through the emergency rooms. And, and doctors... They're stretched. Our resources are stretched. If you know what you can expect and can advocate for yourself or have someone advocate for you, you're in a much stronger position. And one of the functions of our client support program is to advocate for people whose rights are being uh, abused. So in, in terms of what you can do for yourself and how you can ensure the best possible death, and thank you for the lead in, Trevor, and one of the most important things you can do is become a member of Dying with Dignity. You know, we say, support us now, so we'll be here to support you when you need us. You know, we are anticipating 600 calls this year from people who need support in one way or another, whether they're at end of life or want to know more about their advanced care plan. So being aware of those. 
Our website has a lot of information. We have a fabulous blogmaster whose name is John Warren, uh, and he updates it with uh, you know two or three times a week. We have news and, and information. The website itself has great resources about patient rights, and I encourage every one of you uh, to, to read that and find out more. Thank you very much. Interesting. My name is Joseph Nuntuk, and uh, I have a kind of a different perspective entirely, and it's called the ecosystem approach, which I assume humans are part of the whole ecosystem, and I think the white-tailed deer, the mule deer, and the antelope are all fairly equal in this whole system. So the choices they have aren't like what you're suggesting we should have. So I'm just wondering what why would you think we should be more superior in our choices of death than those folks out there that are part of our whole environment and ecosystem? Just, a, just an observation. Thank you. Well, and I think if we look back in our history, we actually did have a system that was probably not dissimilar to animals where the weak and the lame would just wander off to quietly die. Uh, and medical technology has done so many wonderful things for us. I mean, we're living twice as long as we would have decades ago. But the shadow of that is that sometimes we're living on in circumstances where we don't want to be. Um, you know, when you started to talk about the ecosystem, I was actually thinking of something I often hear about animals where people say, you know, if I did to my dog what they did to my mother, I would have been arrested. Uh, I think the, the principle of an ecosystem and eco-justice is about compassion. And end-of-life choice, to me, is, is fundamentally about showing compassion. Good afternoon. This is John Nightingale. Thank you very much, Wanda. Very, very insightful uh, presentation. Um, one thing I get rather confused over personally, and I have discussed this with, uh, with John Warren and uh, various other members uh, in this room, is the use of the term physician-assisted dying. I have used that term, but invariably I will interchange that for physician-assisted suicide, physician-assisted euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia, and the terminology goes on and on and on. And even the world press seems to get these terms mixed up or they are used synonymously. Now, you did explain why physician-assisted dying is the most appropriate, but personally, I think we are playing with semantics by using these different or insisting upon one definition and making sure that the, word, the, the uh, title dying, um, sorry, physicians, um, physician-assisted dying is more for political expediency than it is for a reflection upon the final result, which after all, all the other previous definitions, I feel, explain that same scenario rather handily. But thank you again for your uh, presentation. Yeah. Thank you, John. And I will just comment with my activist hat on. You know, one of the things that we want to do in Canada is change the laws. And one of the ways that we can do that is let politicians know how much support there is for a change in the law. 
so when Angus Reid did a poll and they asked people, you know, if someone is terminally ill at end of life, should a doctor be able to assist them to die? And you got, you know, 80% plus. When um, Environics did a poll and they said, should assisted suicide be legal, they got about two-thirds of Canadians saying yes. So how we frame the debate is really critical in terms of the outcome that results. So I'm always going to choose to frame it because I want to be able to show the strongest possible support. If you're saying, is this really suicide? Certainly, if we talk about suicide being the deliberate ending of a person's life by themselves, can't argue with that. But when we look at some of the ways that the words have been used in a broader context, for example, in Oregon, initially, when people use the death with dignity legislation, their death certificate said suicide. Now they say the underlying reason, ALS or cancer, because they're recognizing that that was what killed the person. They wouldn't have taken their life otherwise, ended their life otherwise. Uh, And here in Canada, one of our supporters had, uh, her father had very severe cancer, and he ended his life. He he took a, a gun and shot himself, and the insurance company refused to pay because there was a suicide clause. And the family took the life insurance company to court, and the life insurance company was made to pay because they said this wasn't a suicide. This was a, a man who was dying of cancer. So I, I hear what you're coming from. I think there, there are interesting nuances about the words. I would uh, encourage you, if you'd like more, there's some interesting blogs. We've written about this a couple times. I've written one called Watch Your Language, Buddy, uh, and another one called Shh, Don't Use the S Word. Um, And then Andre Picard wrote a a column in the Globe and Mail called The Importance of Choosing a Vocabulary for the Dying. Uh, And and our doctors, our advisory council of physicians, they actually have asked us not to use physician-assisted dying, but rather to use medically assisted dying. And so that is our, our preferred terminology. Wanda, my name is Terry Shellington. <clears throat> Thank you very much for your presentation. And as Alan Story said, the gentle way that it's presented. Uh, I come to this uh, subject um, fundamentally uneasy. And um, I believe uh, there would be a wide consensus in this room that, that uh, we ought to be able to cease Uh, medication and in various ways terminate uh, or rather not engage in proactive measures to prolong life. However, it seems to me when we authorize somebody else to terminate a person's life, we've fundamentally crossed a line into another country. And when uh, Alan's story raised his concern for you, you very helpfully laid out uh, all the safeguards and conditions and so on, and that's good to know. We need to have a careful discussion about all that and about the fine print around that. However, like him, um, I think so many of our our changes we we introduce in technology and otherwise, we're sometimes astounded 10 or 20 years down the road to see what they've become. And I'm fundamentally about easy, about uh, uneasy, about crossing that line into authorizing a person to terminate somebody else's life. Uh, when the w- boomers start uh, going through the hospital system in, in palliative care and so on, uh, when the pressure um, on beds and money is uh, much greater than it is today, uh, where will it wind up? So it's a it, partly I'm coming at it with a cynicism about human nature and cynicism about how easy it is to get around some of those safeguards 
uh, that you listed. So uh, I, I'm not sure I want to cross into that country where, where we terminate somebody else's life. Well, and I appreciate your kind words. And let me also say how much I appreciate the gentle way in which you're asking the questions. Because I think this, uh, this dialogue is so important. And sometimes we can have a tendency to become strident as we just think if we maybe spoke a bit louder, people would get our points. Um, Thank you. Let me acknowledge what you're saying. I mean, I think the disability community also raises some fundamental concerns based on, on past treatment, and, and I think we would, would be very unwise to ignore them. But what I, I really believe is that the best possible way for us to ensure the safety of others is to have legalization. Now. One of the questions I, I thought you might ask, and maybe it's, it's still coming, uh, but you might have heard of a report called the Remlink Report, or you might have heard of some studies out of Holland or Belgium you know, that, that have a, a very negative line, and they say something like, you know, 500 people were killed in Holland last year without their consent or against their will or some, you know, and you look at that and think, oh, my God, what's going on? Um, and I know when I first heard that, I thought, oh my God, I'm working for the wrong side. Uh, but I'm a chartered accountant, an auditor, uh, and what we do is ask questions. So I dug into the study, the one that showed that there was 500 people uh, in the Netherlands who were given medication to die without consent. Uh, you see, to their credit, the Netherlands and Belgium have legalized but they're studying what's going on there. And every year they're looking at you know, what's happening. And so they ask doctors confidentially, to, on a confidential basis, to fill out these questionnaires. And then they tabulate them. And they found that there were a number of doctors who claimed to have provided medication to assist people to die. Uh, and they never reported it. And it happened outside the guidelines. And it happened to people that weren't conscious at the time. Which... Certainly on the face of it, we think, oh, well, that's pretty clear and compelling evidence that this doesn't work. But when I dug into the numbers, here's what I found. I found that those instances, first of all, they were with people very near to end of life, generally people with um, cancer diagnosis in their 80s, who had previously had conversations with their doctor, you know, their family members were there and were saying, you know, please help, please hasten. Nevertheless, I mean, whatever you think about the judiciousness of the doctors in those situations, the Dutch are very concerned about what was going on. But this is something that they've been measuring over time. And what they know from those measurements is that when they legalized choice in Holland, that the number of these deaths without explicit consent decreased in half. And the same thing happened in Belgium. There was uh, a number of deaths in Belgium before legalization and it was studied. And then the question was asked again after legalization, and it had dropped in half. From, uh, in Holland, it was 0.8% of deaths and went down to 0.4%. In Belgium, it was 3% and went down to 1.5%. To me, it was a bit like if you're at a busy intersection and you say, I think it would be safer if I painted a crosswalk here. And then the next week, someone uses the crosswalk and they get injured. And you think, oh, if only I hadn't painted that crosswalk. Um, 
No. You know, what you think is, well, how many people were injured before we painted the crosswalk and how many people were injured after? And how many people were injured at intersections with crosswalks and how many without? And that information is available to us as well because New Zealand and Australia, two countries that don't have legalization of choice, uh, did the same studies. And they had about 3% of all the deaths were hastened by physicians without explicit consent. And if you talk to doctors in Canada and people in the Canadian healthcare system, they will tell you that it happens here too, that the morphine is increased, that, that the patient is deliberately assisted to die. So I think that the abuses are happening now. And the very best thing that we can do is legalize and regulate and oversee to protect our weak and vulnerable. Time for one more question. Hi, I'm Bev Mendel-Atherstone. Thank you very much. Um, I think you certainly educated all of us here today. You're mentioning the people who wish to die early, wish to die before their natural death in order to avoid the terrible, the terrible deaths, are people with ALS <clears throat> and cancer, overwhelmingly. Certainly there must be other diseases as well. I just want to mention that when I was a teenager, it's over 50 years ago, the rate, the rate of cancer in, the, in, in North America was 1 in 22 people. The rate now in Alberta is 1 in 2. I just want to... Let us all ponder that in terms of regulations. <laughs> I have to also say that um, t my question is probably related to Terry's. It might even be a part B. Um, I have great concerns about our current healthcare system in Canada, in particular in Alberta. Um, and so I'm not sure if the way our healthcare system is going with the privatization of healthcare if this wouldn't be a slippery edge, a thin edge of the wedge or whatever. And I'll just give you an example. Um, Trevor mentioned palliative care. I'm going to go one step back because dying with dignity is preceded by living with dignity. In uh, Carmen Gay, we had a long-term care center, which was closed. And we told the Alberta government, Alberta Health Services, that movement of many of the people in the center who were near the end of their lives, would result in their deaths, so not to move them to other centers. They were moved anyway, and of these people, two died, one within the first week of movement, one within the second. So this is why I, like Terry, am very skeptical about a system like this being used in Alberta as we're heading more and more towards privatization, where, it would, where already people are dying needlessly within the system under our current regulations. So I think that's a theme I, I might not have addressed yet. The idea of, goodness knows, healthcare dollars are tight. And if we allow this, wouldn't this be a great way to balance the budget? Uh, well, I'm a chartered accountant, so let's look at some numbers. What we're talking about is something like 2% of deaths, and the average time that life is shortened tends to be a week or two. The, the comparative savings 
I mean, are just a drop in the bucket. And you actually have the costs of setting up an oversight system. So this is not a moneymaker. This is not going to be a way to suddenly, you know, unless you decide to change the safeguards and say, oh, well, okay, we'll take out the bit about you have to, you know, nominate yourself. But this is something that's regulated, and I, I just don't see us changing it. Uh, in, in terms of this concern, and you um, raise it a little bit, this idea of a slippery slope. And this is, uh, as others have said too, like I, I see the suffering of a, of a Nagy Morcos, of a Susan Griffiths, of a Gloria Taylor, of a Don Lowe, Sue Rodriguez. Yes, you know, and it moves me to compassion, but I'm scared about other folks. Like if we let these folks have it, will the floodgates open? And I think we can actually learn a little bit from the lessons of history. Uh, when Dying with Dignity started, one of our biggest mandates was to uh, improve advanced care planning. And, and that hasn't changed, but what has is the response of the healthcare system. In the 1980s, in the early 1980s, when we were uh, trumpeting the importance of this issue, the healthcare response was, no, no, you can't have patients filling out their own advanced care plans. They don't know what they want, and oh my goodness, it's a slippery slope, and the next thing you know, we'll be having euthanasia. And then uh, situations continued. We had the developments with Nancy Beag and the withdrawal of life support. And there was a huge pushback. No, 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 we can't have the withdrawal of life support. It's a slippery slope, and the next thing you know, we'll be advocating for euthanasia. And then we had the advent of terminal palliative sedation and the idea that somebody could be uh, put into unconsciousness to relieve pain and symptoms and allowed to die. Huge pushback. You know, no, 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 we can't have this. It's a slippery slope, and the next thing you know, we'll be having euthanasia. Well, I mean, there seems to be some correctness in that prediction. You know, we're now saying, yes, we would like people who are suffering unbearably to have the right to say for themselves, please help me to die. Please help me to die. Nobody else. But if I say that for myself, and I have a doctor or medical professional who's willing to assist me, then I want to have that right. It's voluntary euthanasia, asking for and being given assistance to die. Does that mean that that's going to lead us further down a slippery slope where we will have involuntary euthanasia? I mean, we have another word for involuntary euthanasia. It's called murder, where someone is killed against their will. And really, if you wanted to murder something, somebody, you probably wouldn't spend your time trying to change the law and then convince the person to nominate themselves and then convince two doctors to try to sign off that they, in fact, do have this and are a full capacity. And there are safeguards in place. Is it completely foolproof? Nothing is ever completely foolproof. But what we have to weigh is the suffering of people right now. And, and I haven't been too graphic with you, but let me tell you about some of the things that people can suffer. You know, I think we need to end. Okay. Time, time has... I'll just run out. wrap up <laughs> with a reference to Angelique Flowers, uh, who was a woman who was so severely ill that she ended up vomiting her own feces. There is some suffering that only death can end. Thank you, Wanda. Thanks, everyone, for coming. We're done. <laughs>